This evening I'd like to explore the theme of bringing metta into the world. Uh, Tomorrow morning we'll look a little more specifically at the transition from retreat to daily life and at aspects of uh, daily life practice. So I want to talk a little more broadly about bringing metta into the world. And what I actually want to point to is a perspective in which the kind of metta practice that we have been doing here is deeply interwoven in a sense uh, with bringing metta into the world in multiple ways. And what I'd like to really point to is the sense that our metta practice is actually that practice of inclining to the open heart in whatever situation we're in and in all the realms of our lives. So I wanna point to that in various ways. And I want to do so, I think, in three three main ways. Uh, First, I want to talk about the the movement of our metta practice um, into the world and the way, in in a sense, in which the world is already in our metta practice. But to have that perspective of the uh, interwoven or the interconnected aspects of metta practice, as it were, on the cushion and metta practice in the world. And I want to also talk about some of the challenges uh, of metta practice and do so with the same perspective. And then the last part, which may be be the longest, will be uh, about asking, um, how do we bring the metta practice into our relational, organizational, and social lives? Into those... Uh, more complex uh, parts of our lives where we actually live most of the time. You know, how do we, uh, how do we connect this uh, formal practice with our time there? What kind of uh, capacities do we need to uh, develop? How do we extend what we've been doing here and connect it with other kinds of uh, training or other kinds of, of learning? Uh, so from one perspective, we've, uh, we've undergone a kind of training, we're still in the midst of it, uh, in which we, in a sense, remove ourselves seemingly uh, from the world to practice uh, with uh, a lot of aspects, though, that the world is still, is still there. For one thing, we very much are doing this because of the community and with the support of the community, that we couldn't be doing this practice Uh, without everyone else being here. So there's already a sense of community in terms of support. Uh, That beautiful phrase for formal practice given by Stephen Batchelor to be alone with others. So we're not really alone. We're very, in fact, uh, for many of us, some of our most profound senses of interconnection have come in silent practice. In a retreat like this, or even seemingly paradoxically alone, maybe in the mountains or in a cabin or something, one can feel at times more connected 
than in many daily life situations. And so here we go through this training where we train moment to moment and inclining towards kindness. We develop concentration. We learn focus. We uh, engage many of us in some kind of process of uh, purification. And in some ways, the whole uh, progression of metta is clearly, as Heather very, very wonderfully pointed out last night, is really pointing uh, out to be fully immersed in the world with all beings, right? The, the essence of the practice is this progression where we start with self and we, in a sense, um, do an inner practice that brings uh, more and more of the world in as it were, to our awareness, to our practice. We start with self, we start with that uh, more narrow circle of care, the uh, circle with uh, benefactor and friend and self, and then we bring it out further and we're in a sense uh, going out further into the world. We're we're developing what the poet Rilke called uh, widening circles, really widening circles of affection, we might say, or widening uh, widening circles of of care. I thought I, w- I would actually read uh, the, this beautiful poem by by Rilke, which is about that way. It really is an expression of our meta practice. One of the retreats, I think, about five years ago. Some of you may have been here. We had a uh, a native German speaker here, and we actually read it both in English and in German. This this poem. Uh, Here it is, it's short. I live my life in widening circles that reach out across the world. I may not complete the last one, but I give myself to it. I circle around God, around the primordial tower. I've been circling for thousands of years and I still don't know, am I a falcon, a storm or a great song? We start with ourselves, this progression outward. We find, as we've been saying a number of times, that in this culture, metta to self is often challenging. You know, and sometimes we have to start where it flows more easily and come back to it. But we have that kind of uh, progression where we recognize in a certain way that the metta to self makes possible in the long run, the metta to others. It's actually hard to have love or metta for others when it's not there for self. And conversely, we could, we could, we could say that a lot of the problems of the world is because there's not, for different reasons, metta to self. Shanti Deva from the eighth century who wrote the Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life, he says, This world is disturbed with insanity due to the exertions of those who are confused about themselves. And then there's that very um, powerful line that Heather gave last night where where from the the Buddha, uh, I visited all quarters with my mind nor found I any dearer than myself. Self is likewise to every other dear 
one who loves oneself will never harm another. A little different translation, but one who loves oneself will never harm another. I heard that first about 10 years ago and it was actually electrifying. And it actually, I think I could give a whole talk on that one line, right? It's a powerful one, you know? One who loves oneself will not harm another. It is an incredible guideline for both understanding the sources of uh, conflict and even violence and for bringing, um, bringing healing into the world. I mean, you can read it in a few different ways. You can read it that when we have that settled love of self, there's something that is at peace and there's something in which it would become unthinkable to hurt another. Often there's, when there's a deep love of self, there can be that sense of having exchanged self for other and knowing, the, knowing with compassion uh, essentially how the heart is the same for all of us. I think when one knows the depths of one's own heart, that seems to be the understanding that comes out. It's one of the reasons I think it becomes increasingly hard to harm another. Again, Shanti Deva says about this exchange for self and other that when that love of self is there, when that sense of connection is there, one would just as much harm another as one would have one's right arm hurt the left arm. And I was also really deeply moved by that line, one who harm, one who loves oneself will not harm another. Because if you flip it around a little bit, it also points to the, to the uh, causes of harming and the way in which uh, lack of love of self for various reasons is one of the root causes of harming. And why actually if we're interested in social healing, we would want to look at what makes it hard or difficult or impossible for there to be self-love and all of the forms of oppression that we know are essentially undermined self-love. There's the devaluing of those who are um, targeted or those who are seen as less valuable. I'll come back to that. I'll come back to that point. I think it's one of the reasons that uh, Dr. King and many, many others uh, tremendously valued um, self-esteem among, among the African-American population and the sense, I, I think I heard Cornel West once say that uh, actually uh, self-love for one who is oppressed is deeply subversive. So this metta practice isn't just about uh, sitting here on the cushion individually um, cultivating this, this good heart, but it's quite, quite a profound practice and it can really influence how we understand uh, what we see in the world. 
So I want to talk a little further also about some of the challenges uh, in meta practice. Uh, and do so again with a, a sense of that connection of the, we might say, the inner and the outer. Um, one, of the, one of the challenges of meta practice is that our meta practice uh, can really somehow not be connective of the, the, the mind and the heart and the body, not really connect always the, the open heart with wisdom. And I want to talk about that for a little bit because uh, it's quite important. We've been emphasizing a lot that importance of uh, bringing the body in, in metta. And it's very easy with the f- repetition of phrases uh, sometimes to not have the body there and sometimes not have, have the wisdom there. So I wanted here again to invoke uh, Sylvia. So one of the experiences with those of you who are here for the f- your first meta retreat are missing is a guided tour of the Metta Sutta. <laughs> uh, and so I'm gonna, I'm gonna do a, a very brief and selective guided tour. But, but you would be experiencing that with Sylvia. She likes to uh, take the Metta Sutta and really show how the Metta practice in a way is a complete path of awakening. And so I think it's relevant to the sense of connecting the heart and the mind and the body and, and also our being in the world. I mean, just when you look to the text, um, it begins with this is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness. So right from the beginning, there's an action component. It doesn't say this is what should be done by those who are sitting on their cushions. <laughs> It says, this is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. So right from the beginning, it's pointing to what we sometimes call the ethical dimension or the action component of practice. And it goes on in that way. And then at other times, it brings in uh, very much the wisdom dimension uh, to really, you know, I think especially at the end, by not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, and so metta practice is also a practice that brings out the sense of clear seeing. And we uh, often emphasize, I think sometimes a little bit more than we have on this retreat, the interconnection of mindfulness, wisdom, and metta. We did that at the beginning by really having us be with the bodies and be with mindfulness. But there's uh, also a way in which we can see that inner connection, that when we stay with the phrases, we're also seeing very clearly where we're off. We're noticing patterns of where my mind goes. We're seeing maybe deeper uh, causes and conditions. We're certainly learning impermanence, that we we, uh, sometimes the practice goes well, sometimes it doesn't go well. Sometimes the phrases are there, sometimes they're not. Even even in the midst of I, I, it's just fascinating just how the mind sometimes forgets the phrases even though you're repeating them 18 hours a day or something. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> you know, and, um, and so with, uh, with the text, we have that, you know, have that sense of the sequence of the meta practice and the embeddedness of the practice in uh, action, in bringing it into the world, in... Uh, being ethical and also 
also in wisdom. And that's also expressed very much in the Brahma Vihara. The Brahma Vihara are wonderful teaching really of, I, w- I would say the, um, the integrated heart or the heart that really connects these different uh, ways of opening. And in particular, we have with the metta, the loving kindness and compassion and joy and equanimity. Equanimity especially brings in the wisdom component and it can really, um, can really uh, carry that in a way. And they, one of the subtle teachings that we haven't gone into so much that I love very much is how these four, when they're mature, they interpenetrate and they require each other. That metta without the other three will tend to fall into distortions. It's a quite interesting, quite interesting sense that if we just do metta, but don't open up to what's difficult or painful in our own lives or in the world, we don't develop the compassion, it will tend to be distorted. If we're doing metta and we don't access the joy, it will also tend to be distorted. Or if the compassion gets too focused on what's hard, as with those in the helping professions, and it doesn't have joy, it will tend to be distorted, burnout and so forth. You know, so this beautiful interconnection of, of the four. I wanted to read uh, two passages that express this. One of them uses the metaphor of the tree that uh, Heather brought in last night. This is from the 14th century from uh, Long Chenpa, one of the great uh, Tibetan teachers. Out of the soil of metta, grows the beautiful bloom of compassion to be watered by tears of joy under the cool shade of the tree of equanimity. And that sense of the inner penetration is uh, really helpful. It really is about looking out as we do meta practice for some of the typical distortions, you know, what we call the near enemies or the near opposites or the near, near misses. <laughs> that, was, that was one of our innovations on this retreat. <laughs> so, the near misses. Um, this is from uh, Nayana Ponika Tara who wrote a very beautiful short essay on the Brahma Vihara, which is uh, up there on the board, uh, uh, available on the web. And I've done my, now my obligatory web reference in this talk. Okay. <laughs> I don't. I hesitate to think of where we'll be in 20 years. We'll probably, we'll probably speak and simultaneously we'll have electronic connections. You'll <laughs> have everything hooked into your. I mean, probably you know, iPhones will be like so passe. <laughs> probably, probably more than 20, less than 20 years. Um, in any case, this is from Nayana Ponika. Um, it's about this interpenetration, which is really valuable to hold because it points to some of the ways that the metta can get distorted. Okay. Loving kindness imparts to equanimity its selflessness, its boundless nature, and even its fervor. Compassion guards equanimity from falling into cold indifference. Until equanimity has reached perfection, that compassion urges it to enter the world again and again. 
sympathetic joy or mudita gives to equanimity the mild serenity that softens its stern appearance. It is the divine smile on the face of the enlightened one, a smile that persists in spite of his deep knowledge of the world's suffering, a smile that gives solace and hope, fearlessness and confidence. And equanimity gives to loving kindness an even unchanging firmness and loyalty. It endows loving kindness with the great virtue of patience. And so it gives balance, it gives that uh, kind of uh, settledness, the ability to be with different circumstances, not to be quite so attached you know, to uh, one's wishes or having what one wishes for immediately be present. So it's very, it's very beautiful. Another way of talking about that balance, you know, to, is to come back to mind and heart and body and to really make sure that as much as one can, that all of those are there, that the, the wisdom perspective is there with one's metta and that the body is there. And one of the uh, beautiful models that has inspired me uh, comes from the Vietnamese tradition from the time of the, actually some of the uh, wars and the difficulty, sort of the uh, decolonization movement in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s. And many of you know that the, um, one of the traditional ways to hold these practices and teachings is to talk about the Dharma, the teachings of liberation, the teachings and practices of liberation, as like a bird that has two wings, wisdom and compassion. And interestingly, the Vietnamese dealing with these very challenging practical issues said, we need a third aspect. I don't think they said we need a third wing that would have messed up the metaphor. But they said, they said we need wisdom, compassion, and courage. That, that we, and, and I've always thought of courage as carrying the body. Kind of like that poem, some of you know, by Mary Oliver, where she says, each body a lion of courage, precious to the earth. And that wisdom, compassion, and courage, and it's beautiful also, some of you know that, that the, uh, some of the roots of the word are linked like to the French word cur, which means heart. So it's like, I, I think of it though as the body of the bird and bringing the metta into the body and having it be expressed through the body. And also relates to something I mentioned uh, a number of days ago, that for me, this opening of the heart really needs to be grounded in the body. And not just in the practice, but I think generally, and what I have found in my own experience, for example, is that uh, through meditation, I think just partly through my nature, um, I found I had a pretty clear mind and my heart was open further with meta practice and through other ways. And I wasn't fully grounded in my body. And I could have an open heart and really be knocked around by events and really be uh, not so stable sometimes. You know, I think probably many or most of you know this, that really beautiful open heart that can really sometimes be overwhelmed, be knocked around, And what I found really crucial for helping to address that were a number of body practices that helped ground awareness meditatively more in the body, 
to develop awareness. Some of the martial arts do this beautifully where you develop the awareness at the belly. And so one can have in a way these uh, reference points of wisdom and awareness and the mind, the heart, and then the grounded body. I think that's really crucial for metta practice. And so if you, if that is something that you feel is a horizon for your own practice, there are many ways to go there. You know, one is to really work with body practices uh, in meditation, to work to develop awareness of the body, to bring that into daily life in various ways, to uh, really have regular body practices like yoga or qigong, to do a lot of walking meditation and really focus on grounding in the body. And very, I think very crucial for bringing metta into the world is to be able to have that open heart, but also have it be grounded and connected to the body. And so I, I offer that out of um, my own learning experience <laughs> and a certain amount of suffering. <laughs> so. Another, another challenge for our meta practice is that we or others may have the idea that meta practice is quite selfish. Has anyone had that idea come up? We've heard it in the hall and it's really, it's really um, important and we were really were looking into that I think with Kate's point, you know, that was, was in the hall and that, that you know, it's, it's a very common actually for those who are working in the world for them not to take care of themselves. Yeah. About, I think about eight years ago, my colleague and friend Diana Winston and I, we had a day long here for service providers. And we found that a lack of self-care was pervasive. It was connected with burnout. And there's even a certain ethos among those who are in the helping professions that I shouldn't take care of myself. Among some activists, it's called bourgeois. true. <laughs> it's interesting, you know, and, you know, I, I remember this from college when I, I, I was kind of, uh, I was in activist circles in college and I had friends who felt guilty going to a movie. It's true. They wanted full time. We have to be helping and serving and doing things full time or else we are part of the problem or something. I think that's I think some of that's worked itself out over the years. <laughs> but that can be an issue. And it's really how to find that right balance of uh, taking care of oneself and, uh, and really having that proper kind of self-love. You know? While recognizing that also, the other, you know, one of the other aspects of it in our society, certain kinds of narcissism and self-centeredness are also very pervasive. So how do you sort it out? How do you sort out uh, really mature self-love from narcissism, from uh, self-denial and lack of self-care? Not so easy. I'll leave it to um, tomorrow morning to work that one out. (laughs) But I think sometimes just being aware and asking the the questions can, can be helpful. Another really major challenge of our metta practice, which has come up a lot for many of us and been important for me, 
is uh, finding uh, self-judgment, poor judgment of others. And what we can call the judgmental mind is very, very pervasive in society. And we've talked about that from, in, in different ways from time to time. And it's, a very, it's very crucial to work skillfully with, that, with the judgmental mind, to see it, to notice it. And uh, it's somewhat unexpectedly become one of the main areas I teach in and I, I've actually been doing uh, monthly groups on transforming the judgmental mind for about 10 years. And what I found over those years are the core practices that I invite people to do uh, is to have a regular heart practice, a regular practice of opening the heart, and then a very developed mindfulness practice so you can see the judgments and notice them. And it, a lot of it develops from this. And then also as much as possible to be in the body because there can be wonderful ways to work with uh, how judgments manifest in the body. But it's a very pervasive issue that comes up. And it's challenging to work with, challenging to work with the judgmental mind. Um, What I found is that they're kind of like two rhythms of the practice. One of them is to actually be mindful of the judgments, to go into them, to look at them, and to uh, go more deeply, see some of the roots. Often the judgments are carried by deep and often unconscious beliefs that many of you are uncovering at this retreat, I know. I know that from, from talking with you. And the other sort of aspect or way of transforming the judgmental mind is actually indirect. It's like, connecting with the heart, which is really deeply valuable because a lot of when we go into the judgments with mindfulness, it's actually painful. It's quite painful. And so we need the heart to provide a balance. We need metta practice. And this is one of the ways that metta practice can work so wonderfully. Metta practice, as in the story of uh, the forest and the uh, monks and nuns who could not uh, who were being sort of attacked by, uh, you, didn't, you didn't call them tree spirits. In some versions, they're called tree spirits. And, uh, and the Buddha offered the metta. Metta becomes an antidote to fear. And so it's something like if, there, if you have a judgment attack at three in the morning. Does anyone ever have judgment attacks at three in the morning? That's when they attack often. <laughs> um, And when the metta is strong, as it is for all of us, we can actually use metta as an antidote. We don't so much try to be mindful at those moments because it's really crucial to know when mindfulness can be with what's there in a balanced way. And sometimes that's not possible. In that case, we use something like metta as antidote and it can shift the energy and not have us be be caught, not have us be caught so much. And we can also really just basically hang out more and more with metta until that becomes more of the mind we live in, the heart we live in. And I I know uh, Heather Sundberg teaches that retreat with me. And I remember we were reflecting um, during the retreat. We'd say, what has helped most in transforming the judgmental mind? Was it actually the mindfulness and inquiring into the judgments and being with them and uprooting them and going more deeply and seeing the deep core beliefs beneath many of them? 
Well, that helped. (laughs) But actually, what may have been more important was shifting the very center of gravity through the heart practices and through coming into more connection with our awakened nature, through the heart, through our wisdom and so forth. And that shifting of the energy is sometimes, I think this is also sometimes how social change occurs. There's a place for dealing with problems and going right into them. There's also a place for developing alternatives in which the old patterns aren't so much defeated as they're outnumbered. It's interesting. And of course, one of the things about the judgmental mind is that a lot of them are not just our personal problems. That a lot of what we find when we do metta, and this is one of the ways in which we can see this intersection of metta here on retreat and metta in the world, is that a lot of the judgments come from the larger culture. We internalize judgments from the culture in all sorts of ways. You know, um, I remember going to the Abbey of Gethsemane in Kentucky where Thomas Merton was a monk. I lived in Kentucky for four years and would often go out to the uh, monastery and do retreats there and got to know a lot of the monks and some of the nuns from the nearby Sisters of Loretto. And I remember reading once the novice manual at the monastery and what it says right away is, right at the beginning is it says, don't think that you have left the world. The world has followed you in. (laughs) Have you noticed that? We think on one level we've left the world, right? In a certain way, we're on retreat, but in other ways, it's right there, right? In all sorts of ways. Or as is another way of saying this is said by the the 9X uh, Yellow Pages. It says, if it's out there, it's in here. You know, and so we actually um, internalize many of the value judgments of the society. I think many of us know this if we've worked with uh, what sometimes is called dealing with internalized oppression, you know, you know, which comes, can, is there for gender and ethnicity, sexual orientation. There are these deep pervasive messages that are, that are virtually impossible not to internalize. And we, we encounter them in all sorts of ways. You know, just to sort of, one of the most obvious ways you can, one can see this is there was, um, there was a series of uh, studies done in the 1940s and 1950s in New York by um, Mamie and Kenneth Clark. They were, some of you know these experiments because they became very important for the... Um, 1954 Supreme Court decision outlawing desegregation. And they were studies of African-American young girls, four or five years old, and how they related to different dolls. And in this study, simple, these young girls were shown a black doll and a white doll, and they were asked, which is the good doll? And they overwhelmingly said, the good doll is the white doll. And then they were asked, which is like you? And of course, they said, the black doll. 
that's four or five years old. You know, what, what is that? You know, where, where does that go? And how does that get uh, worked through? You know, that's, that's just as an example. And I think that's there on so many levels, you know, for so many of us in different ways. And so some of the, some of the work on the judgmental mind is actually, uh, when we do that, when we address those issues, you know, as I said earlier, we're really actually um, addressing the society. You know, we can do that personally and we can also shift the culture, right? Those interested in metta and the possibilities of self-love would want to shift the culture so that doesn't happen, right? So that we don't have these um, pervasive messages that are in so many parts of our society, you know, and there are different ways to do that work. And so as we do the metta practice, there are ways in which we, uh, even on the cushion, are already influencing the world, already bringing the metta practice into the world through bringing the metta to different beings, through doing this internal work, which is actually also engaging the world, the world in us, right? And then bringing that out in different ways. And as we do this more and more, and this is the the last part that I want to get into now, uh, metta starts to become a force in the world. And I want to talk some about how metta can increasingly become a force in the world. You know, uh, not just in the ways I've mentioned, but in other ways. And it's very mysterious, like what is the connection between our inner practice and our being in the world? And it's not an easy uh, question to answer. You know, I I, I reflect on a few examples. One of them is um, a very interesting line from the historian uh, Arnold Toynbee, who said that the essence of cultural creation are cycles of withdrawal and return which is what we're engaged in, right? That the essence of creativity in terms of our lives, of the culture, are cycles of withdrawal and return. That's what we do when we do retreats. We know how we get far enough away so we see some things differently, right? And then we can bring back that uh, understanding into the world. I also think in terms of bringing the metta practice in of this wonderful... uh, interaction with uh, Howard Thurman. The, he was an African-American uh, theologian who uh, taught at Boston University, I think Howard. He was sort of a mystical activist. And he, uh, I think, started what we would now call the first multicultural church in uh, San Francisco. And someone near the end of his life, he died in about 1980, asked him, was it like a 20 or 25-year-old, what should I do? And his answer was surprising. You might have thought he would say, well, we we need a few more people down at the church, right? He said, don't ask what the world needs. Rather, ask ask what makes you come alive because what the world needs is people who have come alive. And so it's very individual, this sense of how do we bring that into the world? For some of us, it may be to do quite a few more retreats. For some of us, it can really take a different expression. It's very personal. I also think of the examples of people like Thomas Merton, 
or also of uh, the Thai teacher Buddha Dasa, who lived in monasteries and who deeply affected social transformation. Thomas Merton, many of you know, lived in the monastery. He wrote on social issues, but he was a, the last years of his life, he was a hermit, and he still had this profound connection with the world. And activists would come visit him, like the Berrigans, uh, Catholic activists would come visit him and hang out with him, and he sustained them in what they were doing. So it's very interesting. You can't say, okay, everyone should do this, or here's the way. We, we find our own ways to bring metta into the world. Quite quite interesting and really have to listen and trust our hearts and know what to do. You know, and, know, and some of us do one thing, but we, if we do what we love, that's really, that will bring the metta out into the world. And some of us will do so as parents and some of us will do so as teachers. Some of us will teach yoga. Some of us will be activists. Some of us will be or are educators or therapists or uh, whatever. Some will be activists. And this bringing of metta into the world occurs in all of those ways. Buddha Dasa was the same way. He lived in a monastery in southern Thailand. And when I've been in Thailand, I've got to know a lot of people who were really his students, many of whom were activists. And they would go down to the monastery and connect. And they, had, they brought practice in. One of my Thai friends, uh, Pracha, he told stories of being in prison and doing metta. Doing metta so he would not develop a hardened heart. You know, and doing metta practice, walking in the prison back and forth. You know. This is from one of our colleagues here, Temple Smith, who did a, a three-month metta retreat. And he wrote about it and about how it affected his going into the world. I remember sitting in the Berkeley Hills after the retreat. I could see all of Berkeley, Oakland, and San Francisco. In the past, I had seen myself as a nature lover. Urban settings typically got my mind going in negative directions. But this time, I had a different thought. Looking at this large urban area, oh my God, so many people to love. (laughs) So many people I can see. In the past, I would usually look at cars and feel bad about pollution. But I thought, I can see individual people going about their lives. It's not abstract. I can really take in millions of people in this view, and I really do wish the best for every single one of them. What I found was that these thoughts didn't just come and go. Rather, they stayed and grew. I felt energy coming into my mind and body about how to be in the Bay Area and relate to that many people. (laughs) To practice metta for a long time was for me a strong and clear indicator of what the heart's potential is. It changed so many of my views about the world. Previously, I had a huge list about what was bad about humanity. My list of what was good was pretty short. After the retreat, I could more readily see the beauty in people, being very touched by the beauty of watching a father holding his daughter while she slept on public transportation. To be relatively free of aversion for this period of time changed my whole motivation for activism, which previously had been full of fuel, fueled by anger, frustration, and judgment. Meta changed all that. And so we find ways to bring meta into the world. 
Sometimes we actually can bring the very inner practice of metta into the world. I know that uh, some of you, for example, one of your main practices of metta is while driving. And of course you want to get certain safety procedures down before you do this (laughs) (laughs) extensively. But one can bring metta Metta really goes into the world in all sorts of situations where there are many beings. You can do metta driving, public transportation, being in a public space. If you're at a meeting, especially where you're not having to do much, <laughs> you can do metta. All these different things you can do. You can bring metta into all these different activities. Um, I told the story, or I've sometimes told the story of doing this long meta retreat and then at the end having to deal with a few emails and so I had to download 400 emails and I started I, I, I don't do that tomorrow as <laughs> as you can and what I found was that the meta phrases kept on going and I was at the retreat for three days and I was still doing email and so I, a practice naturally evolved where I would do uh, four meta phrases for every email and then I would try to bring the um, meta feeling in some way into the language or what I said in an email. So I would, it typically was something like, I hope you're well or something. And all my colleagues have gotten many of these emails from me and I, <laughs> I, I get them back now. <laughs> you know, and we try to vary it so we don't get too obnoxious. But <laughs> in any case, um, I think what it's pointing to is that to bring meta into the world there's tremendous room for creativity, right? Just do it. Sorry to use that slogan, but <laughs> uh, but really, really, just just find ways. There are all these uh, incredible uh, creative ways uh, that we can be with others and bring metta. Some of it is working with intention is very important to have to bring the intention for metta into more and more activities. You know, and sometimes it may be doing the phrases. Sometimes it's just to bring care into a situation, you know. So great practices before a given activity have an intention, have the intention to do metta. It can, it can work really beautifully that way. And I think of um, Julia Butterfly Hill, uh, the uh, person who sat in the tree Luna, some of you know, for I think was it two years or over two years, up north of here. And she, she said something once which really has stayed with me. She said, I want to ask, is my action coming out of love? And she keeps asking that. We can keep asking that. It doesn't mean that we become impeccable, but it helps. Yeah. It helps to do that, working with intention. Um, speech is a really powerful area to start to bring metta into. And sometimes I think we could do a second kind of meta retreat or a second part of meta retreat, which was relational, where we, after doing a week of metta, we do four days of practicing metta with speech, right? And have a lot of silence. I would love that kind of retreat, you know? And because right at the heart of the guidance from the Buddha for speech practice, there generally, as I reconstruct the teachings, there are four guidelines, speak truthfully, speak helpfully, speak out of a warm heart, and have good timing. (laughs) 
All four are important, have to have all of them. You can have a good heart, be incredibly truthful, be incredibly helpful and have bad timing and sorry, doesn't work. But, but that quality, a can you lead with your heart in your speech? You know? And there are various ways that really can support that. You know, one, one way is to practice empathy, you know, which some of you know, the discipline of nonviolent communication, which at the heart of it is developing empathy for oneself and others when one speaks. You know? And it's really related to this uh, ability to bring metta into difficulties, which I want to get to, I want to get to in a moment. There's a very nice, uh, let me see where this is. This is uh, guidance from uh, uh, children on metta with speech. Some of, there's a, there was a collection of sayings by children uh, in response to the question, uh, what does love mean? And this is from Billy, age four. When someone loves you, the way they say your name is different. You just know that your name is safe in their mouth. So we work with speech. We work with uh, forgiveness is an amazing practice also in daily life on all sorts of levels, interpersonal, community, organizational, the larger society. One practice that I often do is if there's been something in which maybe something I was not so conscious or I rubbed, there was rubbing, I try to do forgiveness practice. You know, like kind of forgiveness on the spot. It's pretty interesting because it can be very, very helpful out in the world to do a kind of just, you know, two, three minutes of forgiveness practice when just for the small, small ways that we rub up against each other, you know, it can be very, very helpful. And there can be, forgiveness can be brought into the larger social realm. You know, about a little over 10 years ago, I was um, actually at the Abbey of Gethsemane for a gathering of people connecting spirituality and social response. And it was a really, really beautiful gathering. There was, um, there were about 25 people. Include, I met uh, Helen Prejean, you know, the nun who was the subject of the Dead Man Walking uh, book and film. There was uh, Adolfo Perez Esquivel from um, Argentina who won the Nobel Peace Prize for his work with the disappeared. And there, was, um, there were three people who I really actually ended up hanging out a lot with from uh, South Africa who were kind of the equivalent of uh, Congress people or senators. And one of them was a guy who I spent some time with named Blessing Bangani Finca. He was on the Truth and Reconciliation Commission with Desmond Tutu. And I learned from him a lot. I did, eventually did a long interview, which, which was published. And he told amazing stories. I thought I'd just read uh, a little bit from one of them. It's just the power of the open heart for social healing is just beginning to be used, you know? And some of you may be inspired in that way. The Truth Commission did a lot of good for the victims through the process. They had been suffering in silence. It was all bottled up inside. A number of people would come before the commission and say, I have not spoken about this ever in my life. I'm speaking about it for the first time and opening up. 
This was about the Truth and Reconciliation Commission about what happened under apartheid. At the end of the day, they would stretch and give a sigh of relief and say, for the first time, I've got this out of my system. The commission attempted to create the conditions whereby the victims were accorded respect, were made to feel as if they were the most important persons in the meeting room. A great deal of personal healing took place. There was a lot of bitter crying. Through that process, it seemed that the people had unloaded great burdens from their shoulders. They had each released a heavy spiritual load. We heard continually of the atrocities that had been committed. There were gruesome, gruesome stories like that of the murder of the four United Democratic Front activists from Craddock, who in 1985 were abducted, tortured, and killed, and whose bodies were burned, as the perpetrators from the security forces were burning the bodies. On another side, they were having what we call braai, which is a barbecue with drinking beer. The kind of cruelty that went on with the system was just unbelievable. But in all of it, people came forth and gave testimonies and said, we want to forgive. I remember hearing the testimony of the daughter of one of the four gentlemen from Craddock, a girl who was 16 years old. She said, I want to forgive, but I do not know whom to forgive. If only I could know who did what to my father, I would like to forgive. This was such a moving testimony by a young person who at that age we would expect to be so bitter, but there was no bitterness. So often the attitudes and responses of the victims to the Truth Commission were just amazing. It was an indication of the fact that the people who had suffered most became so generous in spirit for some strange reason. And so we can bring metta into those kind of processes, you know, deeply, deeply needed. I think there is metta at the heart of that process. We can bring metta into all the institutions. You know, I gave the story about bringing metta into education, you know, and the fact that uh, I think probably 15 or 20,000 Bay Area elementary school students have learned metta. <laughs> you know, metta is entering very rapidly into psychotherapy, into education, uh, can go into uh, medicine, can go into, into law. You know, the spirit of really bringing the heart into these institutions. I think they all can be shifted with metta. And so for us, as we bring metta into the world, kind of the advanced practice is being with uh, difficulties, with difficult people. And if you want to take this on, this is an important part of your metta practice in the world. Can you bring metta even when there are difficulties? Okay. Can, you, uh, can you take that as a challenge? If you could say, I have a difficulty, now is the time for metta. <laughs> Wouldn't that be wonderful? Wouldn't that change things? So remember to do that. <laughs> uh, but it's really about, uh, it's really like this different uh, philosophy, which we really encourage, I think grows out of retreats, which is basically that difficulties are workable and that we take everything, as Larry was saying, as a learning process. The Tibetan Lojong phrase, turn all obstacles into the path of practice. Turn all obstacles into the path of practice. Or Shantideva, just like a treasure appearing unexpected in my home, 
I should be grateful to have a difficult person for that person assists me in my conduct of awakening. Mm. <laughs> so I think as we, as we do this, as we deepen in our practice, as we work with the challenges to metta, as we bring, bring, have our metta increasingly connected with our compassion, with our joy, with our equanimity, we start going deeper. We start being able to touch the depths more and more. And as I mentioned earlier, I think when we can touch the depths, the challenges don't affect us in the same way because there's something that we know that we've touched in ourselves. I think that when you look to people like Dr. King or people who've really brought a deep spiritual awareness into the world, you find something like that. You find that they have uh, touched certain depths and they've learned ways to stay connected to it, even with difficulties. And that's really the challenge of our practice. So let me finish just with... uh, This was really with three, three short readings. One of them is from the right writer, Eudora Welty. She says, my continuing passion is to part a curtain, that invisible veil of indifference that falls between us and that blinds us to each other's presence, each other's wonder, each other's human plight. And then, let's see where this is. Hmm. Oh, I know. And then, uh, secondly, from Dina Metzger. This is really a summary. There are those who are trying to set fire to the world. We are in danger. There is time only to work slowly. There is no time not to love. There are those who are trying to set fire to the world. We are in danger. There is time only to work slowly. There is no time not to love. And then I want to close with something from uh, Thomas Merton. This was uh, an insight, really, and we could say into the heart of Metta. I believe that occurred after a visit to the dentist. (laughs) And he lived at the Abbey of Gethsemane in Kentucky, which the nearest city was Louisville. And so he would would, uh, go to Louisville to go to the dentist. And he went to the dentist. And then after the dentist, I don't know what he was doing in the dentist or what he was being offered. (laughs) I don't think anything special. But then he was walking in downtown Uh, Louisville, and he described this experience. I want to end with this. In Louisville, at the corner of 4th and Walnut, in the center of the shopping district, I was suddenly overwhelmed with the realization that I loved all these people, that they were mine and I theirs, that we could not be alien to one another, 
even though we were total strangers. It was like waking from a dream of separateness, of spurious self-isolation in a special world. The whole illusion of a separate holy existence is a dream. Then it was as if I suddenly saw the secret beauty of their hearts. The depths of their hearts were neither sin nor desire nor self-knowledge can reach the core of their reality. If only they could all see themselves as they really are. If only we could see each other that way all the time. There would be no more war, no more hatred, no more cruelty, no more greed. I suppose the big problem would be that we would fall down and worship each other. Thank you for your kind attention. And may our meta practice continue with uh, strength and beauty. And may we bring the meta practice with uh, skill and creativity and fun into the world. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.